With gender-based violence at such critical levels, how influential can the media be in educating Australians and ultimately in changing the behaviours that can help prevent violence? Well, I think as you will hear, the media can be really influential. I would like to introduce Jan Earthstar, who is a senior advisor at Our Watch, and she's going to talk a little bit about their work. Thank you for having me. Before I speak, I just want to make sure everybody knows that if you or anyone you know requires support around domestic family or sexual violence, that you can ring the national hotline on 1-800-RESPECT. So my name is Jan Earthstar and I'm from Our Watch. We are the National Prevention Foundation focused on shifting the norms, practices and structures that allow violence against women and their children to occur in the first place. It's an ambitious project and one which every single one of us has a role to play. Violence against women in Australia has rightly been called a national crisis. Nearly one woman a week is murdered at the hands of a partner or ex-partner. And one in four women have experienced physical or sexual violence from an intimate partner. The good news is that the research tells us that violence against women is absolutely preventable. It is not a social condition that we have to put up with. We know that the media plays a vital role in shaping the national conversation on this complex topic. There's an unprecedented level of public awareness of the scale of this violence, and it is because journalists have ensured that this issue is exposed more than ever before. But some reporting in Australia continues to perpetrate unhelpful attitudes and myths, such as victim blaming, minimizing the impact of violence, or excusing perpetrators. And one of the common myths that we still see reported is the idea of perpetrators as good blokes who just snap when in fact research overwhelmingly shows us that there's almost always a prior pattern of behavior marked by escalating violence and abuse. And when we aren't focused on what a good bloke he was, all too often we as a society are focused on what she did to provoke his violence, what flaws in her character led her to end up a murdered woman. This unfortunately is even more so the case for women who experience multiple forms of discrimination and depression. Issues of violence are commonly portrayed as if they are inherent to cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, or inherent to the cultural traditions of non-Anglo communities. Violence against women with disabilities is commonly minimized as an inevitable outcome of care stress. Thus, women who experience multiple forms of discrimination and oppression are most likely to be the ones who have the most to gain from improved reporting. But this is actually about more than just ending victim blaming and sensationalizing and reporting. This is also about the role that the media has in helping communities understand what drives violence against women in the first place. It's a common misconception that alcohol or drugs or stress or mental health issues are driving violence. And this misconception seems strange to me. If we were talking about just about any other type of social violence, such as violence against the gay community or violence against a particular racial group, I feel like we would have a pretty good understanding that these are driven by homophobia or by racism, and that when we add alcohol or add mental health issues, that violence might become more lethal, but it's not the alcohol that drove it, right? It's the homophobia or the racism. And the research tells us that violence against women is actually not so different. Mental health issues, drugs, alcohol, stress, poverty can increase the frequency or the severity of the violence or make it very difficult to get out of the violence, but it is sexism and gender inequality that are driving this issue at its core. The story of how gender inequality drives violence against women is a story worth telling, so that our community can understand what actions they need to take if we want to live in a world where violence against women ceases to exist. So this is why we work with the media through our Media Making Change program. We run training in newsrooms, we provide guidelines on responsible reporting of violence against women, 
and as a key part of our work, Outreach partners with the Walkley Foundation on a number of projects, including the Outreach Award in the Mid-Year Walkley Awards and the Media Fellowships Program. We are hugely proud of the success of our inaugural Media Fellowships Program. 14 journalists from a diverse range of newsrooms around Australia were selected from a competitive field. Over three retreats, they were given intensive training on violence against women and how to achieve best practice reporting. As with so much of what we do with the media, the exchange of information with the fellows has not been a one-way street. Our watch has learned a huge amount from them. And I'm really pleased that today we're going to hear first-hand insights from some of our media fellows. So a big thank you to the Walkley Foundation as well for continuing to ensure that this issue remains high on the agenda and continuing to partner with Outwatch. Thanks. Thank you, Jan. So now I'd like to welcome our panel to come up and take a seat on stage. Our moderator, Eric Bagshaw, will do a better job than me of introducing the panellists, who are Alison Dance, Gina Rushton, and Sarah Malik. Eric is the economics correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, based in Parliament House in Canberra. Eric is a multi-award winning journalist, having won a Walkley Young Australian Journalist of the Year Award for Print Journalism, and the Kennedy Award for New South Wales Young Journalist of the Year. And he is also, of course, an Our Watch Award winner for Best Journalism Campaign, along with Nina Fennell, in 2017. So please welcome Eric and the panel. Thanks very much, Claire and Jan, for uh, that introduction. And likewise, the Walkley Foundation and, and Our Watch, who do an amazing job year in, year out, providing events like this and teaching us in the media how we can better report and cover what is one of the biggest issues of our times, I think. The media has gotten better at reporting violence against women, the Me Too movement, and a whole range of developments here in Australia, but there is obviously still so much we can learn. So it's a privilege to talk to these three women here today who have been our Watch Fellows. They've just gone through the inaugural course, so I'm really looking forward to getting to know some of their experiences and insights and, and how they can better inform the public discussion. So we've got, from the left, we've got Gina Rushton, who's a reporter with BuzzFeed, and previously with The Australian, and also has had work published in a whole range of other newspapers and magazines. Then we've got Alison Nance from Channel 10, and had started her career in Orange, working with Wind News there, and has really reported from the regions for a long time. And finally, Sarah Malik from SBS Voices. And she's specialised in covering a lot of these issues from uh, more ethnic perspectives and seeing how that plays out in the community. So I reckon, to start off... I wouldn't mind to get each of you to talk about a story, you know, for the audience's sake, that has really influenced your perspective on this issue and how that story has informed how you approach not just violence against women but also your practice day to day. So, Gina, I might go to you first. I think there's probably two stories. The, the one story that made me really want to understand particularly, I think, probably sexual violence a lot more was I spent a year trying to tell the story of... a young girl, she was 15, who'd been allegedly gang raped. And I sat in on the trial, tried to <laughs> tell this story and it was just so hard legally to do and then all four men got acquitted. I found over a year period, it just, I just got to know the family really well and, and just saw really the ways in which this had affected their family and the ways in which your access to justice are so limited when you are not a family with resources and also when you're not a family who has any reason to be literate in the court system or in the justice system. And so that's 
probably one. And the other one is I've done a lot of stories about reproductive coercion. And I think what that taught me, which is when someone controls whether and when you fall pregnant and what is the outcome of that pregnancy. So your access to contraception, your access to whether or not you want to terminate a pregnancy. And I think interviewing women on that made me really aware and the fellowship really drove this home of how powerful it can be to have the language to describe your experiences because I was interviewing women and was then contacted by women who said I had no idea that this had a name like I didn't know that my boyfriend flushing my pill down the toilet or whatever that that was actually that had language there was language to describe that so I think and the fellowship was amazing to kind of have that I guess not academic but the words to describe this stuff yeah Alison what was the story that sort of really brought or encapsulates this whole issue for you yeah, for me, it very much started being out in the regions. I remember being out at a place well past Coonabarabran, which is very inland, if anyone knows it, and coming across a woman I wanted to interview for a completely different story. And suddenly, when we had travelled all that way out there, she went, oh, wait, I can't, because he doesn't know where I am. So I came across that far more often than I ever thought I would, almost weekly. I had women that couldn't be on camera because they were out in the regions or in rural areas hiding or because they didn't want their story known because it's such small communities where they, you know, they don't want to be named and shamed for something that they shouldn't be ashamed about. So I was really wondering, you know, how can I help them? I'm here face to face with these women when no one else is. What can we do to make sure their voices are heard when they're feeling like they can't be heard? We've had so many examples, you know, we're a regional newsroom, we've got four journalists, we're covering an area five times the size of Greater Sydney each. So it's a heavy workload and a lot of travel. So we've had so many stories where you just haven't had the time to really delve into them and give, give them the attention that they need, I suppose. Not finding survivors, just going with, with the professionals that can talk on their behalf. So, and I did have a few stories that I just couldn't get off the ground. Either there wasn't talent or, you know, even my higher-ups said, no, that's a bit too risky, let's steer clear of that. So it was this frustration of not being able to break through that this fellowship has really helped with. And I think that's definitely one of the, the biggest ones for us. And obviously being in the newsroom, police scanners going off every 10 minutes with a domestic violence issue. And they're going, no, that's not a story. And we know in broadcast that often that isn't a story because it happens so often. So hearing that was big. But at the time was a domestic violence centre being proposed for Orange. And that was a series that we were doing that you know we really needed to dive into a lot more. And it was chatting to people in there hearing the different opinions from locals that really made me realise we needed to do more. Sarah, you've done a lot of work with Islamic communities and with also Indigenous communities. How have those stories influenced your perspective on this issue? Um, yeah, so um, I worked on a series that the ABC did on domestic abuse in faith communities and I pitched, researched and worked on a story on Muslim women and their issues accessing religious divorce in community. And this was not for all Muslim women, for a particular religious orthodox women who sought a divorce through male-mediated bodies. And this was a very challenging story to do because you're so dealing... When you say male-mediated bodies, just unpack that for me. Um, so basically to access a religious divorce, they had to go through an imam's panel. And often these imams were people who had particular interpretations or understandings that didn't really take into account 
more contemporary understandings of what domestic abuse was, which included emotional abuse. And the story was very challenging to do because you're often dealing, I, I call it the double whammy. I think that this is the issue in a lot of minority communities where women find it difficult to talk about their experiences because they feel like they are going to expose their communities to more racialized ammunition, basically. And I think that that is the challenge in working with communities where they already feel under siege or they already feel as if they're dealt with, with suspicion. And I think that that makes it more difficult for women to talk about their stories and to actually access redress as well. And so it was important for me to be able to tell these survivor stories in a way that was sensitive and that was nuanced and that also really made it clear that patriarchy and gender inequality that drives domestic abuse it might have its particular manifestations might look different for a migrant woman, for a working class woman, for a woman in a rural area, for, you know, in gay and lesbian communities, but the dynamics are the same. You know, it doesn't mean that certain communities have more greater proclivities towards violence. So I think that that was very important for me. And I think, again, going to, without digressing, but I think the reason why this issue has now become a conversation, a national and global conversation, is largely because of the fact that we have female editors and we have female journalists who are saying this is a story. You know, this is a story of power and abuse and accountability. And I think that similarly, when we have more diverse reporters and me coming from the background I did, I saw that this was a story and this was an issue and it was something that was worth telling and worth telling in a way that was sensitive and was complex. So it was a very challenging story to do, but I think it was an important one as well. Alison, I will come back to you now and just touch on some of your experience covering this issue from the bush, where covering a, a story involving sexual assault or domestic violence is sensitive at the best of times in the relative anonymity of the city. But when you're in a country town, more than likely some of the people in that story, the community will know. How did you approach covering some of these stories with that sort of closeness in mind? Definitely. I think what we really learnt from the fellowship was the importance of being prepared and getting ahead, which does sound near impossible when you are already so swamped with your work, but it is possible. So after this, we ended up getting in touch with a lot of the services that support women who have experienced violence, and they were so excited at the opportunity to help us connect with survivors who could share their stories. And yes, in a country community, a lot of the women that were willing to speak were decades past the violence that they had experienced. So they were you know, in a place where they could speak to us and be happy to be identified. So it was, it's just really about building that network and expanding your horizons, definitely, with where you can find those people. We also, we had never really interviewed people anonymously, because, you know, on a slow news day, I suppose, people might not trust what you're doing with that. <laughs> but we really did change our ideas around with this a lot more, and we did open it up for women to have their voices heard without having to have their faces seen. And it was not as painful as we thought it was. It didn't detract from the story in so many ways, and it was very doable. So there's a couple of things that we kept in mind. How did you manage that with the demands of TV? I mean, it's, it's all about the images. It's all about, I can imagine, editors being sitting there going, all right, that's great. That's an awful story, and it should be broadcast, but we need a, you know, a talking head on camera. How did you change the culture to say, well, maybe we don't need this? I think coming in with the reassurance from our watch mm. and being able to highlight that this is an important issue that is more important than having a face talking on a camera. It is okay to have the back of a head. It is okay to have a silhouette. And I'll give them a plug. We have some fabulous cameramen that are very creative and worked wonders with our stories. <laughs> right. 
Gina, during the fellowship, did you find that there was, you know, any really significant takeouts or, you know, like an aha moment, like the ways that we've been covering this issue for so long and despite our best efforts, maybe we've been doing it wrong? I think we all kind of went into it sort of knowing what worst, absolute worst practice was. Like, I think we've all seen the headlines where you just think, oh my God, how are we still, you know, victim blaming in 2019 in the way that we are or like holding up perpetrators, you know, just kind of minimising their behaviour. But one of the things that I think was so helpful in the first few days, and we all had these aha moments in the first few days, where it was just, wasn't even so much about reporting at that stage, it was just like what Jan was talking about before, and it was about what drives domestic violence. And it's a question that is really complicated. I mean, we did three retreats, but because the way that the media essentially reports things so if there's you know a man kills his partner or whatever there's an alcohol problem there's a mental health problem they're living in poverty there are other cultural factors or whatever the way that we generally report it and I don't think it always comes from a bad place I think it's kind of these bad things happen and we want to explain why but I think learning about the drivers of domestic violence and realizing that things like alcohol or mental health issues or poverty or all these things they're not actually driving it they might be factors in influencing the severity or the frequency of violence or other factors but the drivers themselves are things like gender inequality and really rigid gender stereotypes and a general condoning of all violence and then a you know general condoning of I guess gender-based violence and learning those things kind of for me was just like oh my god like the story is not he was an alcoholic let's go talk about um, government funding for alcohol treatment. Like, that's not how you frame the story, even though you kind of want to because it's nice to feel like you have the answer for why this atrocity happened. And for me, that was just the biggest turning point, being like, okay, here's where we're getting it wrong every day. What about things like talking to neighbours? Often we have examples in a newspaper that says, inevitably the first quote is, he was just a really good bloke. This is really out of character. Often that's relied on to frame the story of this being some um, freak occurrence. Yeah, and What's this, the reality, do you think? Yeah, and we all had this question because all of us were like, well, who are we supposed to ask? You know, you're out there door knocking, you want to get, you want to find out what the hell happened on this street. We all know those stories where they, within the second day, they've completely forgotten about the victim and it's just like how this guy was a perfect kid or was a good bloke or was captain of the footy club or whatever. And we've all seen how quickly that, that story, that narrative takes hold. And I think if you are door knocking people and they are saying he was a great bloke, it's okay to put that in the story, actually. There's that piece by Tom Marr, Jill Marr's husband, which talks about the monster myth. You know, we don't want to pretend that these people are monsters in the night because they're not. They're people that we love and people that we know. I think Jess Hill's book really... I don't know if anyone's got a copy yet, but it really speaks to this idea that they are people that we know. But put it in and then put, within the context of it, put the stats of how where violence happens, that it happens in behind closed doors, that it happens in people's homes... You know, it's not surprising that the neighbour thought he was a good bloke. He wasn't out in the street doing this. What does it say to, to women when the coverage is framed in that way? It minimises it. Yeah, I, I guess it, it kind of... It makes it seem like... It perpetuates this myth that people snap. And they don't snap. If they did snap more frequently, they'd snap in public view. <laughs> I'd really like to add to this one. If Go I for can, it. Actually. This was one of the key issues that I went into this fellowship for. One of the examples I had was about three o'clock in the afternoon, we had a call, a woman had had horrible violence inflicted against her in Lithgow, so off in the car two hours we went, we had 10 minutes to pick this story up. 
to get back in the car to make deadline back at Orange. And that meant, yes, whoever was on the ground there as a young journalist with a lot of stories that I had to get done that day and 10 minutes to do it, you're door knocking, you're interviewing whoever is going to talk to you. Sorry, Alison, I'll just say so door knocking for those oh, who might not, might not be journalists themselves is where you literally go up to your neighbour's house and go knock on the door and hope you get a quote from them. You get grossly persuasive. Yeah. It's not nice to do. No one likes it. <laughs> so you know, help journalists if they do knock on your door. So, you know, we did get those comments and took them back. But Margaret Simons, one of our mentors in this program, sort of explained to us that, yes, that's okay. That's your job. You talk to whoever's there. But instead of going, and neighbours say he was a good bloke, voxy, you know, what the neighbours said, voxy, voxy, I would say, and speaking to neighbours, it's clear that yet again, violence against women is a hidden issue. Voxy, voxy, voxy. And straight away, that's flipped the context of how I've used those quotes. So I've done my job, but I've also done the job I need to do for these women. Yeah, and just a voxy again is just a direct quote from that person who's being interviewed and, and slid up throughout the story. Sarah, sort of draw out this issue a bit more about the interaction between race and, and violence against women. In Australia, I can imagine, as you said when we talked about the stories that influence you, editors being reluctant to go, let's pursue a story about domestic violence in, in a local Islamic community. How do you manage to get that sort of story across the line? And equally, what's it like internally within the community, sort of encouraging people who, from the get-go, are perhaps more reluctant to speak out than if they are from a, let's say, a more mainstream community? Now, this is a tricky issue because I'm Muslim myself and so I feel like you know my role as a journalist and as a Muslim is about I really feel passionate about accountability and keeping power accountable and it's a really tricky issue when you know you know that how do you balance that tension between potentially fueling Islamophobia and also seeking justice and redress for women and I think that that's a tension experienced by lots of women in minority communities where um, they want to be able to speak out about issues within their communities but also not expose the men in their communities or themselves to more racialized aggression from the wider society that often treats them with suspicion to begin with. And I think that that's the double whammy that a lot of these women face. For me, that tension is resolved by really highlighting the strength of the female survivors and also a lot of the feminist activists within the communities. Because I think that the flip side to that racialization of Muslim women is often seeing them purely as victims and seeing them purely as without a voice. And I think the fact that I myself am a Muslim journalist pursuing that story, that changes the optics in a huge way. So I think that having that diversity within the reporting community so that you have different kinds of reporters, I think that the lens in which you do the story is different. And so for me, it was very crucial to not kind of get into that lazy binary of this victimhood because I talk to a lot of feminist activists, Muslim women feminist activists who actually taught me a lot about you know the fact that within the West these small communities or imam communities were actually out of step with a lot of religious opinion across the world which had evolved and developed. So they were really running their own ad hoc operation that had a lot to do with power and control and particular dynamics rather than religion. And so that was really important for me to stress the fact that there were these feminist activists and reform workers who were working really hard within these communities to help women achieve justice and to also push those alternate interpretations. And I think that, yeah, again, another takeaway for me from the whole fellowship was that in the same way, you know, you can't talk about diversity without talking about racism. You can't talk about violence against women without talking about patriarchy and the polite term gender inequality. 
they're actually really linked. So a hijabi woman getting attacked on the street, that is related to the joke about Muslim terrorists on TV. Like they're actually linked. One leads to the other. And I think that, like Gina said, we can focus on the monster myth. You can focus on the aberration or the extreme cases that shock everyone. But really, it's very pervasive, everyday stuff that is actually the things that we need to pinpoint. You know, it's the fact that what do our power players look like? Who is dominating the legal fraternity? Who is dominating politics? Who are in the positions of power? Because it's really an issue about power. And I think that all of the same dynamics when it comes to gender apply to race as well. You know, the idea of minimizing and normalizing that inequality is really key to that abuse being allowed to occur and not really being called out. So that was a long answer. <laughs> no, you definitely covered a lot of ground, but I think it's probably easy for a lot of us to forget, as you say, you talk about the deep structural inequalities that allow this, these situations to occur. And, and perhaps now we're only just starting to become properly conscious of that and not in a kind of theoretical way. You know, a lot of this stuff was confined to academia in some ways, assessing some of those structural inequalities. Whereas now, because of we're changing the way that we report some of these issues, hopefully yes. these ideas become a bit more mainstream. Yes, and I think that the key to the fellowship and the way we're talking about this conversation now is that I think as journalists we can sometimes we're focused on reporting events and we get very focused on event-focused reporting. And it's like really stopping and kind of trying to understand what is this phenomenon how do we analyze this as a social phenomenon? What does it mean and why is it happening? Because one woman a week in Australia is being murdered. She's being murdered by someone that she loves. And this is always a woman and always a man. That is the commonality here, regardless of religion, regardless of class. And it's terrifying, you know, the dynamics of it are terrifying. And we really need to analyze it beyond the, oh, this horrible, monstrous rape or murder in Melbourne, you know, it goes beyond that. It's very deep, it's very structural, and it's something that I think as journalists, we, our job is to interpret society and to critique society. If we don't understand this as part of a phenomenon, I think that we're not doing our jobs right. I want to turn to talking about how you interview survivors. I know some of the toughest interviews I've ever done in my life have been with, with survivors, and it's, it's really a whole different ball game to interviewing a politician or anyone else because you, assessing someone's trauma, assessing their willingness to partake in this event which may have very big implications for their future. I mean, it's particularly someone that's going out on the record and saying, this happened to me. The internet means that's there forever. And so that can have a very positive effect, but it can also have a devastating effect. How do you manage that relationship when you're talking to people in those situations? Gina? I think there's a lot that you need to think about before you even approach someone to tell their story. I'm really lucky where I am that if there's a good enough reason, I can use a pseudonym, which is fantastic. And often with some of these stories, it's not important that you put these people's names on the internet forever. It's about what's happened to them and why. I think that it's important to really let your interviewee know exactly what it means to tell their story and the fact that that's on the internet forever to explain the context of where their story is appearing. Like, what might the headline be? What kind of pictures are going to be in the story? Who else is going to be quoted in the story? What kind of experts? Because I think the thing that we often forget as journalists, particularly less so now that I have more space to write features, but, you know, if you're doing newspaper reporting or in a, in a newsroom where you're covering a massive area and you're on super tight deadlines, is that 
to us it might be just one day and or 300 words in a bigger story or whatever but for that person that's how their story is told and represented and it's incredibly meaningful and I think yeah it's one thing we talked about we had this fantastic day where we did a lot on trauma with the dart center and vicarious trauma and also interviewing so many people in the row on this stuff you do sort of feel it yourself but one of the things is also being wary and this is something I've experienced a lot with interviewees if they're a little bit too ready to tell their story that's also something to be wary of you know you want to make sure someone is feeling okay has a support person has a support person after the interview has a support person when the story is going out if the story is going to be delayed let them know like if the story gets spiked, let them know. If the story is coming out early, like all these things that seem like tiny things to us and wouldn't matter really in a in a different story or a story where you're, you're not going to let a politician know when the story is coming out. But those kind of things, I think, really just drove home that... I mean, I think we all do this fellowship because we think a lot about this stuff and some of it was just validating that we were doing the right things. But, yeah, I think just kind of really thinking quite seriously about it and thinking if this was me and this had happened to me and my story was going to go on the internet forever, what are the things I would be anxious about? Alison, what about you? Any tips out there for people who might be wanting to cover this area? Yeah, mine's actually for you guys. So I would really like to see society change its attitude towards what people want to see or, or what they consider makes good TV. So, you know, a woman does not need to cry on camera to be sincere for her story to be considered true but it's expected. I've had a woman whose sister was murdered apologising to me on the phone the whole time that she wasn't sounding more upset, that she wasn't crying, because it has been 20 years for her. So, you know, I think it's really thinking about what you're seeing and what you're putting out there and also the comments that they're reading going, oh, you know, she doesn't look very upset. She is. We're there. We can tell you that she's upset. That's why she's doing, telling that story. And I think one of the big things we learnt from the fellowship as well was, you know, we don't just walk out the door. This is make sure they have someone there with them or they've got a phone number or maybe you call the next day to check in to see if they're okay because it is a big ask and even though we're pressed for time, this is their life. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really serious issue and one that we journalists need to keep talking about how to best tell these stories and do it in a way that is in the most ethical way with the highest level of integrity. And it is really difficult because you are talking to people who are basically revealing to you some of the worst experiences of their whole life, things that they might not have told anybody. And I think that for me, you know, it's about, like Gina said, putting all those safeguards in place, but also remembering that journalism is about bearing witness. You know, it's about seeing people's pain and it's about telling those stories and it's about, through telling those stories, creating change. And I think that a lot of the women, that's why they're telling you their story, you know, because they're hoping that this will create change and you are bearing witness to their story and that can be incredibly affirming and empowering for people. And so I hope that I can be a vehicle for that. I think of myself as a vehicle for them to be able to tell their story in a way that allows them to experience catharsis or experience a feeling of this will be useful or this will help another woman. You know, they often say that hopefully this will help another woman because, you know, a lot of people are getting information from the media, you know, and we are, like, providing kind of a landscape for their experiences to be understood. A lot of the women also talk about, oh, the first time I really understood what emotional abuse was was when somebody named that for me. These were experiences I had, but I had no name or language for it. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's the way, a good way to think about it is that, you have a job to do, so you have to do that job. Yeah. Is part of that equally distancing yourself in some way emotionally so that you can do that job? 
I think so. I think that it's, it's like they need you to be good at your job. <laughs> like that's the best way you can be helpful. Mm. You know, like they don't need you to break down. Like they need you to be the person who is going to do your job. Mm. And I think that that's what you have to kind of remind yourself that that's what your role is. But obviously you're human. And obviously for me, like the stories I do, I care about them a lot. And there's a reason why, you know, I do the stories. So it's not an easy thing to turn that off. Mm. And in the fellowship, we've talked a lot about you know, how do you regroup? How do you get the support that you need? How do you make sure that you don't become enmeshed? And that's something that I think all journalists need to also take into mind about how they can also care for themselves and make sure that they um, do the right thing by a survivor, but also themselves as well. I'm sort of looking a bit, a bit ahead. Well, there's been a couple of cases recently, Jeffrey Rush and, and then John Jarrett as well recently. How has some of the... I guess more court reporting and some of these cases that have, in the Jeffrey Rush case, really was driven by the media before it was brought to trial. What do you think they've done for the issue more broadly? I think that what's been really interesting, and I've been um, glad that the link's been made, is that, you know, the personal is political. And we're seeing, like, not only journalists are being more fearless in reporting these stories and realising that they are a story. Like, this is a story. This is the story of our time. And the fact that you're seeing these you know, big figures like Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Rush and Epstein recently, you know, being held accountable and that what they did are crimes. I think that it's been really good to see and I think that you would not have had that, you know, unless we've had these movements and conversations like Me Too and the fact that these conversations are happening in newsrooms and I think a lot of that has to do with the nature of newsrooms changing, to be honest. And, you know, male newsrooms, these kinds of stories would go off on the police radar and it was not a story. But I think the landscape of newsrooms changing has meant that what we think of as a story has changed. And so some of the biggest stories of the last year or two have involved these powerful male figures who have arrested for these sexual crimes. And I think that, again, I'm going into the newsroom again, but it is important that the people who tell these stories, they're not so embedded in power that they're understanding that these are stories. In some of those cases, the courts found that well, news organisations either didn't have all the facts backed up or got them wrong. What does that do? And do news organisations now, because of those judgments, have a duty to get, beyond reasonable doubt, things right? Do you know? I think the Jeffrey Rush case didn't really help anyone in terms of, like, there's a lot of reporters. I'm sure you guys have stories that you haven't been able to tell. I certainly do have stories that you can fact-check and just spend months on something that you know is never going to see the light of day because of our defamation law. So to see something like that and then the ensuing conversation about the media and about defamation. I don't, I think that case in particular is extremely unhelpful. But yeah, I mean, something that I think is like slightly kind of makes me feel hopeful about it is that at least there are stories that in the Australian media we can't tell, but I do think it's encouraging people to talk to each other at least. We might not be able to represent those things, but I do think we all know that the conversations we've probably had with our friends about our own experiences or friends that we've had or workplace harassment and that kind of thing, I think there is a national conversation and it might take a little while for the courts to catch up or for us to find ways to be able to tell these stories publicly, but I do think that there's still a tide. What do you think is the future of Me Too, Alison? <laughs> Big questions. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not sure on that question, to be honest. I would like to think that it's going to keep making people think about this issue at the very least, if not 
see some reinforced change and some structure to how we delve into these issues and how we change our attitudes with listening to women who are hashtagging me too. People want to read about these things happening to famous people, but I would love it if the conversation around workplace harassment in particular kind of shifted to where we all probably know what happens the most, which is in workplaces like in the service industry or in hospitality or places where it might not be a famous person, it might just be a, a chef or something, but those stories are the ones that often people, pe people in casual unstable employment have the least resources to ever make any kind of claim or... And I kind of hope that our conversation, especially in workplaces or sexual harassment, just kind of shifts towards people that don't have all this money and power to fight this. It's an interesting point. I mean, yeah. we, st we started to see it with the universities, and of course, eventually totally. the Human yeah. Rights Commission did go in there. Yeah. And we have seen it a bit with the big accounting firms, actually. Deloitte and PwC and KPMG have actually basically self-ordered in some ways and, and revealed instances of, or prevalence of sexual harassment. But I wonder if there's a a hurdle with the workplace in that you would presume the body that could investigate that kind of an issue are probably unions. And a union setting up a situation where workers are up against other workers, is, does there need to be someone else that people can go to? Because I don't necessarily see the likelihood of, of that occurring in some of those industries where it's reliant on, on basically union putting members against other members. So it's interesting, really interesting debate to have. Well, thank you so much, and thanks, Gina, Alison, and Sarah, for a really fantastic panel. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia.